It's important we keep the situation as contained as possible. The situation's in a coffin! I think it's pretty contained! Welcome to Bottle Episodes, a podcast where we discuss very special TV episodes or movies set in a single primary location. I'm CJ. And I'm Courtney. And today we are discussing Buried, a thriller from 2010 starring Ryan Reynolds. And here's what it's about. An American contractor in Iraq wakes up to find himself in a coffin buried alive. Nightmares. Visceral nightmares. Yeah, actual nightmares. That's what this movie is trading in. This is the most bodily movie or show that we've ever bottled and probably will ever bottle because the headline is that Ryan Reynolds is the only on-screen actor for all of 90 minutes and the coffin is the only location. We never leave it. Yeah. Pure bottle. There's, I mean, there is... That bottle (laughs) is shut tight. Talk about it. What was your overall experience watching this movie? So I'm going to quickly give you a shout out because you told me, hey, if you can watch this movie in the dark, if you can watch this movie without any lights on around you, this might be the best experience possible for this movie. And the answer to that is yes. Yes, it was. It was the best possible way to experience this movie because you're sitting in the claustrophobia of it. I loved it. I was blown away. Like. I knew very little about this film going in, and I think that that is the best way to experience it, not to you know speak from a bias place, but I definitely feel like the less you know going in, the more impactful this particular film is. It was very admirable in a lot of ways. It is very tense. It's very claustrophobic. It's very innovative, of course. I wasn't even sure if this was the first, last, and only movie that ever attempted something like this. So I went on Google. I did checked it out. Our requisite research. It is not the first movie to attempt mm. something like this, a one-man show in one location. So the first movie okay. ever to try it was an Indian movie called Ya'adin in 1964. And it made wow. the Guinness Book of World Records for fewest actors in a narrative film. That same year, Andy Warhol made a movie called Sleep, but it wasn't narrative. It was a five-hour long movie, or what he called an anti-movie, an anti-film. And the only thing it depicts is his boyfriend sleeping for all of five hours. Oh, well. (laughs) You can watch both films (laughs) on YouTube if you want to. That's Ya'adin and Sleep, both from 1964. Then there have been other movies, which you have probably heard of, with one actor and a minimal supporting cast including Castaway, starring Tom Hanks in 2000. Yes. I Am Legend, 2007, starring Will Smith. And then this movie, I remember you told me about, otherwise I wouldn't have heard of it, called Locke in 2013. Yes. Starring Tom mm-hmm. Hardy, which is also, I realize, a bottle-type movie. So we should cover it that is. sometime in the future because it seems similarly innovative. Literally, I was just thinking about that because I, as soon as I finished Buried, I thought, you know what, actually, this is giving me Locke vibes. So we should definitely check it out. Definitely discuss it. And then in terms of the buried alive conceit, it makes Mm -hmm. me think of three things. There was an episode of Alias called Tuesday in season four, which a lot of fans really loved. I only liked it. CSI, they did an Mm. episode called Grave Danger, directed by Quentin Tarantino, (laughs) where our beloved Nick gets buried alive. And speaking of Quentin Tarantino, Kill Bill Volume 2, Yes, yes. Where Uma Thurman is buried alive and ends up punching her way out of the coffin. I mean, I'm trying to think of other things that I can remember where someone is buried alive, but usually 
you get a lot of information from the outside world as opposed to just, you know, the only person, the only, the only from the perspective of the person who is completely buried. So I'm thinking of this episode of Leverage where one character is buried and you spend the majority of the episode with the people on the outside rushing around to try to find this person that is trapped. So it was really interesting to see that juxtaposition here. Yes. My overall thoughts. I love the cinematography in this behind the scenes featurette that I found on YouTube. They claim that they never repeated a shot. Really? Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. And I think that variation is what holds your attention for all of 90 minutes. And similarly, the variation in lighting helps a lot as well. Yes. He starts out with a Zippo lighter. Then we eventually find a flashlight, some glow Mm -hmm. sticks, the the light from the cell phone, of course. So I think variation was very much a key to victory in terms of the aesthetics. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I I didn't even think of that in terms of, you know, how that's casting (laughs) this situation in a different light. LOL. I am going to list off some negatives right off the bat because I will probably be talking about them a lot. (laughs) Go for it. Just to spoil that up front. The music, I thought, was one of the worst scores I've heard in quite a while. I had a huge, strong (laughs) distaste for the score. Oh, man. Tell me more about that. I think that it is very excitable, unsubtle. Okay. It feels very Mm -hmm. hammy, and it feels... Mm. It feels like a cartoon idea of an action thriller. And I'm surprised that they went in this action thriller direction when you would expect yes. them to go in a more underplayed psychological thriller, atmospheric type direction. And similarly, I think that the editing is a little overmuch at times. It keeps cutting when I think that we would be better served in terms of that claustrophobia department by staying mm-hmm. on Ryan Reynolds. To hold, yeah. Right. Yeah, I see. And sometimes see we do. From with that. And I yeah. can see them wanting to vary up the editing as well. Like sometimes we'll cut fast, other times we'll cut slow. But I will say they should have favored that slow editing more than they did. Interestingly enough, the director, Rodrigo Cortez, also edited this movie, which is relatively wow. rare to have. Yeah. I mean, relatively rare, especially like with these million dollar budget type movies. And I think that maybe him also editing does a disservice to the final product. Yeah, it's it's kind of like having the author be the only proofreader or editor <laughs> on, on the book. And as a result, none of the darlings get cut. Everything stays in. One thousand percent. There are other things yeah. that I felt could have been firmed up some script stuff. But overall, I thought the script was solid. Me too. I think the simpler, the better. Additionally, I really liked the way that it plants hope and then it kind of changes those that ratio down the line, how how one thing can feel like so great and so hopeful in one moment. And then by the time you're uh, toward the end, you realize how damning a thing it is. I think that the writer whose name is Chris Sparling, and I'll talk about mm-hmm. him more in a second. He plays with hope and and that caught your attention. To me, I like that he played with trust and mistrust. Mm-hmm. He played with yeah. Ryan Reynolds' trust and mistrust of the people that he was on the phone with and also yes. our mistrust, especially in this other secondary but very pivotal character, Dan, who we'll get yes. to. 
But mm -hmm. I think that that is what really makes this idea of only staying in the bottle, in the coffin for the duration of 90 minutes. That's what makes it work. Because yes, the whole time, absolutely. we are not sure what's going on outside. And I think it would have been such a huge mistake to cut to the task force office to see right. those U.S. agents try to get Ryan out of the coffin. It would have just right. diminished it so much. Or absolutely to like see the impact of this knowledge that he is trapped going around the world. Like the fact that to him, all of the issues are so immediate. It is so in this moment, I need you to do X, Y, and Z for me right now. What are you doing for me specifically right now in this moment while I'm trapped in this coffin? Like, you know, it, it's, it, it brings the needs so clear and so immediate, you know, we know exactly what he wants and that is just to get out of that coffin. And anybody who seems to not be helping in that regard automatically feels like an antagonist, uh, especially where you're coming from in terms of uh, any of these folks being trustworthy. It is hard to trust anyone at certain points. In fact, the only person that you kind of trust is that sweet voice that you hear on the answering machine that is obviously his kid. Like it's that's that little beacon of hope that you've got. But everybody else is just suspect. Right. So like I mentioned, this was written by Chris Sparling, who at the time he was a struggling screenwriter just trying to make it in Hollywood. And he wrote this script as a micro budget, no budget feature so that he could direct it himself. He just wanted mm -hmm. to create a work sample. But this was his one script that actually took off. It took Hollywood by storm as these things go. A lot of producers were interested. A lot of directors were interested. And he said that he liked what this Spanish director, Rodrigo Cortez, brought to the table because he was the first director to suggest keeping it inside the coffin entirely. The budget was $2 million, 2 to $3 million. I was seeing both numbers. So we'll say it was a range, 2 to $3 million. And so it <laughs> made back its money. The box office, $21.3 <laughs> million. I don't remember this movie being in theaters. I don't remember even ever hearing about it, but that's the joy of a low budget movie. Yeah. <laughs> Is that yeah. There's not a high bar to clear there. I mean, do you remember this movie? I actually have vague recollections of hearing about this movie because I think it was, and please correct me, but I, I think this was maybe a Sundance. It was. Kind of pick that kind of swept everything. And I remember... I remember being surprised that the guy from Two Guys, A Girl in a Pizza Place was in a movie that people were like, yeah, this is this is it. This is the one that's getting all the awards this year. Well, that's impressive that you remember it at all. And yeah, I think I think <laughs> it, it when I look on Wikipedia, it did get a lot of accolades, especially in Spain, where it was produced. It was shot in Barcelona over 17 days. Uh, 35 shots a day with only two cameras. The wow. cinematographer said a lot of times the coffin set was so contained that practical lights were enough. Like they didn't have wow. to supplement with any other studio or specialty lights, which is really Man. saying something because, <laughs> I mean, if you told most DPs you only have a flashlight and a Zippo lighter to work with, they would walk off the right. set. Speaking of that Zippo lighter... They had to modify it so that it produced a bigger flame. Okay. And that ended up injuring Ryan Reynolds a lot. Ah, Everyone yeah. has to suffer for art. <laughs> I take it he got really banged up during this shoot. I believe it. I believe it. Like I, for something that seems so like you just lay on your back in a box for like, you know, 17 days or so. Like, 
I, there's a lot of stuff that happens in this where I'm like, how did he not like come out of this with amazingly terrible injuries <laughs> as a result? Like some of my biggest fears were around that Zippo. So I am not surprised <laughs> right. that that was the thing that got him the most. I'm not one to shout advice at a movie screen. I know a lot of people do. I'm not one of those people. However, I was saying turn off that damn lighter because you're using up oxygen like for the entire yes. first act. And finally, yes. he do they do hang a lantern on that. Right, right. He does he say, I'm it sorry, yeah. it's just so dark in here. I was like, OK, thank God. At least, you know, at least, you know, this is a <laughs> dumb decision to keep this lighter on. Right. You're at least smart enough to know that this is a poor choice that you're making for a sense of comfort. And I get it. Like what I really appreciate about this film is the realism in it. And like sometimes when you're just panicking and you're in a situation, you're like, I know this is a stupid choice. I know that I'm not supposed to go in this barn where the serial killer is, but I'm going to go in anyway, just because I'm trying to get away because <laughs> I'm not thinking clearly. I think for me, the big fear wasn't just the oxygen. It was the, what if you set yourself on fire? What are you going to do? What you going to do? You just going to burn up. Right. There's nowhere to run. <laughs> I guess so. There were seven different coffins used during production. Oh. And they all had cute little nicknames for them. The first one was the Joker, which was so oh. named because they considered it their wild card. Okay. AKA, it was very versatile. It mm -hmm. was isolated for sound and reinforced for all those hits. It was lifted mm -hmm. 35 inches above the floor so that they could film it. Uh, then mm -hmm. there was one called the Tunnel, which was longer than average. Okay. So that they could get these like sense. wider shots. Similarly, uh, we're just switching axes here. There was one called the wall, and that was a super tall coffin for those sh oh. for those wide shots, right? Where there's those overhead, there, like, right? Where yeah. we get a really wide shot of the coffin, and then it's just surrounded by black. I thought those shots were really neat. They were beautiful, yeah. And then this is really cool. This is where. I appreciate the ingenuity of the director. There was one called the 360. This coffin was rigged so that the walls could be raised and lowered so that they could get oh, those neat. continuous 360 shots. Yeah. So we're spinning around Ryan Reynolds. And then when a coffin wall goes out of frame, then mm -hmm. it gets lowered to make space for the camera. And then likewise, the opposite wall gets raised just in time for the nice. camera to catch it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. So there are a lot of really visually stimulating shots in this mm -hmm. movie that I appreciate. I agree. And I'll say this. I mean, eventually we'll go on and talk about Locke. But one of my big complaints about Locke was that it was just so like the camera was so static mm. that you start to lose the thread even on like what's happening just because you're kind of like you're starting to zone out because you're getting a little bit bored uh, by it. But this, I never felt like my attention was shorted in any way, shape or form. Like I felt like, okay, I'm watching this movie. I'm engaged. I'm, I'm feeling the highs and lows of everything. And the camera work is so, so crucial to that. Any other overall thoughts before we get into the synopsis proper? No, I just want to I just want to reemphasize, like, if you can get as experiential as possible while watching this, please do. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, set yourself on fire with a Zippo, but definitely like, you know, if you can watch it in the dark, give yourself that that present, especially if it's your very first time watching it. It was a complete treat to watch it that way. It's one of those movies where, you know, when characters are underwater, like mm -hmm. in a Poseidon Adventure, Shelly Winters type situation, and they have to hold their breath <laughs> for a really long time. You're kind yeah. of holding your breath along with them. 
this movie is that, but for 90 minutes. Exactly. Exactly. The whole time you're just like, hi, I'm also buried next to you. (laughs) Well, here we go. Welcome to Buried. This is Buried. Act one. It's 2006. Ryan Reynolds plays Paul Conroy, an American truck driver in Iraq, who wakes up to find himself buried underground in a coffin after his convoy was ambushed by Iraqi insurgents. He finds a Zippo lighter, a Blackberry phone, glow sticks, a flashlight, a flask of alcohol, a pen, and a pocket knife. He calls 911, his employer, and the FBI, none of whom help him. He finds a number in the phone and dials it. His kidnapper, Jabir, answers and demands a ransom of $5 million from the U.S. government. Otherwise, he will leave Paul to die. Thoughts Mm. on the events of the first act? I did not expect it to be such a serious subject matter, something so realistic. I thought it was going to be something a little bit more over the top, a little bit more like, hey, this guy owed money and now he's, you know, trying to get his way out of the situation. I I guess maybe I'm heavily influenced by the smirky smarminess of Ryan Reynolds. So I thought I knew what I was getting myself into. I just I was really surprised by how much I actually ended up deeply caring about Ryan Reynolds getting out of this box. Like it felt like the stakes were real as opposed to we have this hero. Of course, he's going to make it out by the end. Like you don't really have to worry that that little thing that you hear in the back of your head when you think of protagonists in a film that wasn't there for me for once. Uh, I was very surprised that the, and that, and that 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 feeling didn't just happen in the third act, that that feeling, you know, of thinking he might not get out of this one started in that first act, which I was very surprised by. Yes. What about you? What, what did you feel about that first act? Here's the big hot take that I have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go. Get Let's get into Let's it. Let's go. Ryan Reynolds, I think, is solid in this movie. Mm -hmm. I just spent so much of the movie imagining better actors. (laughs) So I'm just going to throw that out there and and we can wrestle that thought to the ground. (laughs) Okay, so one, one. Tell me, tell me. I don't typically dislike actors wholesale, especially when they get Mm -hmm. to like a certain point in fame. I just sort of accept them. I'm like, yeah, you're good at what you do. I think he is good at what he does. He's good at that smarmy Ryan Reynolds branding. He's good at Deadpool. And I understand why he would take on a role like this in 2010. He wants to prove that he has some range. Why else would you take a role that is clearly so uncomfortable? It doesn't seem like it's it's a lot of fun. Demanding. Yeah. So We're in that zone of like why famous people go on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. They've got something (laughs) to prove, right? Did he prove it? Yes. To a degree, yes. Mm -hmm. But I did spend the entire movie thinking that there are so many more other interesting actors (laughs) who (laughs) can more intriguingly plunge the depths of human expression than the guy we have here. And now I'm curious. So who are some of your casts? Who who would you recast in this role? I made lists. You made a list. I love it. Okay. Love oh, no, it. lists. Yes. Plural. Plural. So Multiple. I divided them into two. More. <laughs> okay. First, I wanted to keep in mind, not only would they be good, but would they mm-hmm. actually do it? Would they be in that Ryan, yes. Ryan Reynolds situation where they had a little something to prove, right? Nice. And the two separate lists I made were actors who would take on the role in 2010 and actors who would take on the role today. 
Oh, look, I love it. Yes. My 2010 list is thus. Number one, Jake Gyllenhaal. Ooh. Yeah, no, that's a good call. That's a really good call. He would be phenomenal in this. He takes on darker roles. <laughs> he does. He takes on he roles does. like Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. He's in that yeah. 911 movie that's that's on Netflix that I haven't seen yet, but it's on my list. I think it's called The Guilty. So, yeah, so yeah. he likes a good one man show. He really does. And I think, that, OK, my problem with Ryan Reynolds in this movie occurs in the second act, especially. So maybe we'll get to that in a second. But when he gets mm-hmm. really petulant and and short yeah. with some of the people that he's yes. on the phone with, that's when the performance started to fall apart a little for me. And that's when the mm-hmm. writing started to fall apart for me, because I thought that mm-hmm. these phone calls just are really skirting the realm of credulity. I'm like, it would not go like this, right? These people would not be bickering. Even in a high pressure situation like this, they would Mm -hmm. actually be less inclined to bicker. So that being said, I think an actor like Jake Gyllenhaal would maybe sell that bickering, jerky aspect a little more. And I have to admit, I don't really know much about Ryan Reynolds. Like if he's done any theater or anything like that, I almost feel like ridiculous for even suggesting that he might have, but he may have. I don't know. But he definitely, Jake Gyllenhaal, I will say, definitely has, I think, the chops to sit there and do a play where essentially he's just monologuing for the majority of it. But I feel like having a theater background definitely would have boosted or elevated the performance. That's a good point. Uh, I'll zoom through some of these names so we're not spending the whole time talking about other people that could have been in the box. This is what we're doing for the rest yes. of the podcast. <laughs> Strap in. Okay, I thought Channing Tatum, because in 2010 he would have something to prove. You don't agree. I see by your face you don't agree. I- I don't know. I don't know that that's something that I never would have guessed that name on this list, to be <laughs> honest. And again, I, I actually do love Channing Tatum. I do want to say that just for reference, since we're talking about our orientation to Ryan Reynolds, my feelings about him are similar to yours. OK, he's fine. He's around. He does he's things. Fine. He's fine. He's fine. I think he's like you said, he's solid. So I don't know. I get. Channing Tatum to me is solid, but in a different way. I think he had would probably allow for a little bit more vulnerability in a performance like this. Um, that is a key word. Yeah, I, that That's what I thought was me. missing. The vulnerability of it. A Ryan Reynolds Stan would be like, are you kidding me? Like he's crying. And <laughs> the, there's a very specific definition of vulnerability that I have, which is like truly lowering the walls. And I think right. he never really gets around to lowering the walls. It still does feel like Ryan Reynolds is trapped in that box. He is the kind of actor who is himself. And it never feels like he's someone else 100%. You never get that full and total transformation. Exactly right. Then I I did have to go on IMDb and search hot actors in 2010 to come up with this name. <laughs> uh, John Bernthal, I think, would have oh, been I really love John Bernthal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that I we've that actually movie. seen him do things like this in The Walking Dead. He's ve- he's a lot more dynamic, I think, than people give him credit for being. He's very like he, his range is really great. I think that out of this list, this is probably the name that the writer and director would be likeliest to agree with. Because mm-hmm. I can imagine that they wanted someone with that man boy energy 
You know, like yes. he's in his mid twenties. He's going to yes. take on this truck driver job in Iraq at the protestation right. of his wife. He has a small kid at home. Like I was trying to be mindful of mm-hmm. all those details. I think that John right. Brinthal most successfully embodies what the filmmakers wanted from this character. I agree. And and I think too, that he is even now, even still, even though people like know him as the Punisher and they know him from like all these roles that he's been in, he still even now has a little bit more of like a character actor quality to him. So you can sink into that performance even more so than, you know, seeing Ryan Reynolds for some reason. Right. I I think that I would have been even more immersed in this movie, in the emotion of the movie. I think that I was only ever immersed in the situation. That's probably my overall hot take for this whole thing. I was immersed in the situation, not necessarily the emotion. Right. I'm going to switch over to my 2022 list. These are names where I don't know. You'll you'll be like, what's he on? <laughs> but here we I'm go. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen Archive 81? I haven't. This is probably recency bias here. Like, I'm probably only thinking of this person because I just saw him in Archive 81. But the yeah. lead in that show, he's very good. His name's Mamadou Athi. And that role requires him to just look at a bunch of footage. So I imagine that the audition for that show, Archive 81, is just him being asked to look at a screen. So he does interesting things. Just, yes, a journey. lot of face acting. That's my point. He's amazing at face acting. He runs the gamut in terms of emotion. And mm. Archive 81 kind of goes to some incredible places, but he okay. keeps it grounded. Nice. I don't know if maybe he's the right like persona for Mm. for what the writer and director had in mind. Like, I don't know if he's this like strapping army guy because he kind of strikes me as like a little string bean. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I think he could sell it. You know, I like the idea that this this main character is not quite army. He's army adjacent. Yes. So he's helping out with a lot of things. So he doesn't necessarily have to be like army army guy. But at the same time. If he can give you that face journey while you're sitting there. Exactly. <laughs> he would have given him, us an amazing yeah. face journey. Okay, last one. Get ready to laugh. Are you ready? I'm ready. Oh, God. Jacob Alordi. Nate Jacobs from Euphoria. Oh, my goodness. You know what? You know what? I'm not mad at that at all. I'm okay. not mad at that Thank one, you. actually. I think that's actually pretty, pretty decent. I think he could actually manage that. I think that... He plays similar notes to Channing Tatum, obviously not identical notes because he's way more sadistic. Of course, the character he plays is more sadistic than any character Channing Tatum's played. But the reason I draw the comparison between the two of them is because they do a lot with a little, which I think is perfect for a contained movie like this. On that show, Euphoria, even on shots that are not focused on Nate, he's giving Mm -hmm. us something just by giving us nothing. You're kind of you're drawn to him. So many characters on that show are drawn to him, but you, the viewer, are drawn to him because he plays it like there's just something ticking underneath. And I think that he would play that rage of being trapped underground in a very interesting way. I don't know. You know what? I agree with the fact that he would be really good in the role. There's a part of me that wonders, though, if we would still run into the same sympathy issues that we're seeming to have with Ryan Reynolds. That is such a good point. In, in act two, when he starts attacking the people on the phone, just fucking help yeah. me. Oh, my God. Can you imagine right, Nick right. Jacobs doing that? I, I would probably turn it off. You're not wrong. <laughs> I, I, I might at least like... pause it because I need a break. 
Yeah, yeah, you'd be like, uh, okay, I need to go get some tea or something. Like, <laughs> I feel like, and even still with him, there, there's a little bit even more of an entitlement problem. Yes, that would that I would that I think would come across with that performance. Like, even though again, Ryan Reynolds is out here just kind of you know giving the performance that he's giving and doing his Ryan Reynolds thing, you can feel him being forceful, but it doesn't necessarily feel to me like it's coming from a place of an. Entitlement. It feels like it's coming from a place of a little bit like obliviousness mm-hmm. and desperation. Like, I just need you to get me out of here, man. Like, just get me out. Just get me out. Just get me out. I'm very, I'm very concerned about myself and my person. Whereas it would feel very much like my dad's going to sue you if I don't get out of <laughs> <Right. laughs> And we don't know. That's a fine right. line. Because I'm not saying Nate Jacobs would be under. Right, right, right. I'm not right, saying right. Nate not Jacobs Nate would Jacobs be inside that coffin. <laughs> right. We we but haven't say, seen him in any other roles. I mean. But you think that that affluent, bitchy character is all that he has to give. I I have I a know. feeling there's something more there that this role would reveal. I will say, I mean, I think two things. I think one, we've seen you know him do his Nate Jacobs thing. But also, he was in The Kissing Booth. I don't know that. Which, is that a it's, teen it's, movie? It's a teen movie that was on Netflix. It okay. is trash. <laughs> Do not watch it. You don't waste your time. And I don't know if this is him just being typecast at this point, because again, to your point, this is very, we're still kind of early on in his career and seeing him do things, but he does come across. He just, he does lean into this sort of like, if I'm making a demand, it's coming from a place of this thing that I want is supposed to be mine. Right. I think he would need like a really, 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 really skilled director <laughs> to get him into this place of I'm being vulnerable while also making these demands. OK, you know, reaching out for this help. I think that's that's kind I of I do see what you mean. You're saying process. that that sense of entitlement is really almost part of his actor's DNA. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It feels a little bit like that. But again. To your point, it's still new. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what he can do. Right. Okay, but let's move right, on. Right, right. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, this no, no. No, I'm sorry for bringing all these other alternates into the conversation, but I'm this glad we so talked good, about it. Though. Now, actually, one more thing before we move on. Who do you think mm-hmm. is the winner out of all those people Ooh. we just discussed? I, you know, I think I'm going to lean on John Bernthal a little bit here. I think he just is the, I think he's in the right age group. I think he give, would give enough of a nuanced performance. I think that, um, I don't know. I think he would be the person that would be like, I'm looking for this role. I could almost imagine him having been someone that was possibly in the audition. You could see him on role, a list. Like, yeah. Very easily. Yeah. So John Bernthal would be my pick. Okay. Me too. Yeah. Is that your is that your, yes. is that your pick too? That is also okay. my pick. I'm glad we did this. Okay. Act two. Paul calls the State Department and speaks with an agent named Dan who deals with hostage situations. Dan says they will not negotiate with terrorists, but will try to rescue him. Paul expresses his fear that Dan cares more about protecting the US's greater interests than saving his life. Dan assures him that they have rescued hostages in the past, including a man named Mark White. Dan works to locate Paul. Meanwhile, Jabir murders Pamela, one of Paul's co-workers, forcing Paul to comply with his demands. Paul thusly cuts off his finger and records a ransom video, which goes viral on YouTube. This development upsets Dan, who says that Paul has now compromised their chances of finding him. 
Paul receives a phone call from his employer's legal counsel, who informs him that because of Paul and Pamela's romantic relationship, they had terminated his employment supposedly before his capture, and thus will not take any responsibility for his situation, nor will they entitle his family to any benefits in the event of his death. An airstrike from the U.S. rocks the coffin, which begins to fill with sand. Paul fears that his captors have been killed. It looks like all hope is lost, and he records his last will and testament. How do you feel about Act 2? A number of things, and I'm not sure what I want to talk about first. We already alluded to the fact that the phone calls to the State Department to his wife and Mm -hmm. the wife's sister, he yells at her, he calls her a bitch. I just thought that it was... (laughs) He calls her more than that. Yes. (laughs) I thought it was a mistake to play those phone calls with the same exasperation that you would get from being on hold on the phone with Comcast. Correct. Because it's not the same situation. And it was almost ridiculous that the people on the other line were treating it like that. Right. That they were like, uh, they almost seemed like straw men. They were acting so ridiculous so that Ryan Reynolds could have this big freak out. Exactly. And it just didn't track for me. I I read in my research that like the idea here was that the writer was going for this air of realism like trying to kind of convey this idea of the bureaucracy of the u.s government of the bureaucracy of being locked into this situation where you work for this big company that sends you overseas and really actually doesn't have your back you know the modern inconveniences of you know people not necessarily picking up their cell phones even though you have access to people all of the time because we have our cell phones people are still not able to pick up for any number of reasons especially in a moment of crisis where you need them to all that being said i felt like the frustrations that he was expressing or that he was feeling with you know the sister in particular that for me kind of threw me out of the film a little bit i'm like you wouldn't be like a little chiller like like at least like just a little bit sweeter so you could get the information that you need so you don't turn her off and she immediately just shuts off her phone it's like oh here he is being a jerk again like like you wouldn't try to be a little gentler in that aspect that felt forced i liked that conversation in concept because we started to get some hints as to what his home life was like. If she's being so mm-hmm. short with him, she's doing so in the defense of her sister, which means right. that maybe their marriage is starting to, is there's a lot of cracks there. They might there's even be tension, separated. Yeah. So right. I liked right, what right, it right. was doing for the story. I just thought that the execution was a little heavy handed. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. love what you were talking about where where the screenwriter, Chris Sparling, wanted to comment on the bureaucracy and how employers don't always have your back, that when you are caught up in institutions like the military industrial complex, you only have yourself to look out for. That thematic through point was mm-hmm. very well executed. I thought it was one of the strongest things about the script, and I definitely want to come back to that when yeah. we start to wrap up Act 3. My big thought for Act 2 is that I thought that Dan steals the movie from Paul. Really? Dan is played by a voice actor called Robert Patterson. Not Robert Pattinson. Mm-hmm. Robert, not Batman. <laughs> Robert Patterson. And I looked him up on IMDb. He does mainly voice work. He does mainly video game mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. I was so fascinated by this character. 
Mm. I thought that he was giving me actor nuance in a way that Ryan Reynolds as Paul was not. I thought that he was he himself was sympathetic. Like I had Mm -hmm. sympathy for this guy who had such a high risk, high stakes job. And yeah, he was clearly written to be sympathetic to Paul. But that sympathy was colored by Paul's perhaps correct suspicion that Dan has the U.S.'s interests at heart more than he does Paul's interests. Right. So many conflicting and interesting, intriguing colors to this Paul character. And I thought that Mm. Robert Patterson executed beautifully. I want the Dan (laughs) spinoff. Every time Dan got on the phone to me, I thought it was such a stronger movie. He definitely was one of the the highlights of this film for me as well. I did. I will say I like that you gave us a little backstory on his career because I did occasionally get these moments or these flashes of like video game character (laughs) moments where he was just very much like action oriented. I need you to go for it. Like it just felt very much like. Yes. The voice in the earpiece telling us what to do next. Exactly. I liked the character a lot. I liked that you could tell like very clearly this is someone who's had to handle these situations a lot. He had a lot in hand and he had to like find a way to at least keep this guy on the line, but also keep him from, you know, giving up too much hope. So maybe there can be a win here. Maybe there can be a situation where everybody succeeds and the U.S. comes out looking out good and I... Dan hostage handler end up taking things, uh, you know, winning as well. You know, like ultimately you can feel the amount of pressure this guy is under as he is trying to impart some kind of, you know, wisdom or at least extract enough information to actually get this guy out of the ground. Mm -hmm. I I agree with you. I think he's very strong. And it's also impressive when you consider that, of course, these voice actors weren't recorded on set. They were right. likely recorded after principal photography wrapped. And actually, it was Ryan Reynolds' acting coach mm. who fed him his lines. She was in a booth away from set, but she was mm-hmm. able to speak into a microphone. And Ryan Reynolds had this tiny little earpiece in his ear. And it had to be mm. that tiny because they were shooting so close up to his face the whole time. Uh, And the director noted that it was kind of difficult to retrieve the earpiece from Ryan's ear when they were done shooting. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) So that's how they got that done. And I like that they they had his acting coach do it because a lot of times when actors are being fed lines, it's just the script supervisor who's reading the script very flatly. You know, if the script supervisor were to try to act, it would probably be a distraction to the actor. Right. So I like that they got someone with enough vocal talent and know-how to give Mm -hmm. him those variations. I think that the performances they get of the people who are not in the room, they're so crucial because he has to react to them and their performance has to match whatever he is doing on camera. I never felt like Dan and Paul were in separate scenes. I almost felt a chemistry between them, a chemistry like an actor's chemistry. Right, right. Okay, act three. Dan calls Paul and tells him that an insurgent knows of an American truck driver buried alive and will divulge that location in exchange for freedom. With minutes left to live, 
Paul struggles to stay alive as Dan races to the coffin. He hears Dan unearth the coffin. Dan apologizes as he reveals that the insurgent led them to the coffin of Mark White, the hostage whom Dan had claimed had been rescued. As Paul appears to take his final breaths, the movie ends. God. (laughs) Okay. The first thing I want to talk about actually is something that I didn't put in the synopsis. There's one ridiculous sequence mm-hmm. where he battles a snake in the coffin. Yes. I yes. thought the, it the, was the snake battle. Let me put this lightly. Dumb, <laughs> stupid, completely <laughs> unnecessary. Here's what it reminded me of. The first thing I thought of was a much ridiculed plot point from season two of 24. Every 24 fan knows that moment when Kim Bauer is running from a cougar and we all laugh at it because it's this antagonist from nature that comes out of nowhere. And the reason that there's no suspense or tension there is because this character is probably not going to meet his end from a random animal who's been thrown in here. I don't know. There's a part of me that's kind of like if they had made it something smaller or like a scorpion or like a field mouse or like like something. I don't know. Maybe it would have been better. Maybe it would have been more realistic to just be kind of like, OK, this bug worked its way into the coffin and now it's not going to kill you. But it is another irritant that you're trying to right. avoid while you're in this high pressure situation. Fine. I would have been like, OK, whatever. We don't need this, but fine. This, the introduction of the snake was so. It was in his pants. <laughs> I was like, was it in his pants the whole time? Yeah. Perhaps he fell asleep. I think he fell asleep at some point, like during the movie, right? Because it takes place in the span of like two or three hours and the movie is 90 minutes. So it's not literally real time. So part of me was like, perhaps he fell asleep and that's when the snake crawled in. If it was in there the whole time, how could you not have felt it? This is the other thing. The flask. As soon as that flask dumped out of his pocket and he also had the lighter, I'm like, well, that those two items are definitely going to interact at some point. You had your video game player helmet on. You're like, (laughs) okay, one item plus one item. This is going to turn into a weapon at some point. Exactly. I'm like, unless we see him taking giant swigs from that thing, which if we're (laughs) talking about realism, that is real. I would have been like, all right, I'm just going to take one back real quick while we're in here since we're in this trash situation. It's five o'clock somewhere. And also I'm about to die. (laughs) Let me be drunk while it's happening. Um, So so anyway, like I just I I agree with you. The snake thing was completely wild. I would have accepted it as a viewer if it led to some other development that was needed to make the plot work. Right. Or right. a clue or like this right. can give us information about where he is or like anything. Anything. But it was it really was filler. Just there. It was just there because it's introduced. He defeats the snake and then we move on with the story. You didn't need it. Right. Another scene that I had an issue with was when he views the video of his coworker Pamela getting mm. murdered. Yeah. I laughed out loud. Did you really? <laughs> Obviously not because of the plot development, because that was horrific. But right. it was all the execution. He views the video and then he vomits. And then we go into, we're in slow motion. <laughs> we're in jittery slow motion land. It yeah. just felt so late 90s TV movie. So yeah, as much as I love some of these directorial choices, there were other ones that I thought were so ham-fisted and blatantly unsophisticated yeah i definitely 
I felt like that would have been a moment to just let the scene play out with the actors just general like this is this is the performance of me <laughs> seeing my coworker die. Um Yes, sometimes I, less is I, more. Right. Especially for a moment like, like that. You don't need so much to sell it. They do an audio montage as well. Oh, there are a few God, things I hate yes. more than an audio montage. These snippets of dialogue that are <laughs> echoey and overlapping with each other and playing in the character's mind. Usually it's done yeah. to remind the audience, hey, remember this. In this case, it, we weren't even being reminded of anything important. So it's also no. logistically useless. Mm-hmm. It, it seems yep. to have been purely an aesthetic choice, and it's a ridiculous <laughs> aesthetic choice. Yeah, there's nothing like disembodied voices floating around to remind you of the trauma of a situation. That it's like, just we don't, happened. We don't need all that. Right. We don't need all that. Right. It's good. Remember what happened 20 seconds ago? <laughs> like, we're fine. We're fine. We're just let us stay in this moment. You don't need to like do all this extra stuff. The whole plot line with the coworker, I, I thought it was really important. He's talking about the fact that she that they were just friends. I believe that, but I'm still very curious about like what was the intention there? You thought that Paul and Pamela were above board. I wasn't so sure, I, and I love I love that ambiguity. I love that we weren't entirely sure whether these coworkers were fraternizing perhaps more than they should have. And I love the yeah. ambiguous state of his marriage. I mean, ambiguous mm. as in, we're not sure whether the marriage was in trouble, whether he and Linda yeah. were separated or not, whether he and Pamela were a thing or not. I thought yeah. that the writer gave us as exactly much as we needed. I picked up on the fact that his wife was mad at him. I did not necessarily think that their marriage was like done, done. But I did come away from it thinking there was probably a little bit of ambiguity or at least a little bit of a question, perhaps even in his wife's mind of like, is he with this lady? Is that something that's actually happening? Because you know, because from all of the pieces that they've given us, you can already see what the headlines are of this guy's demise. Like you can already see that, you know, the company's going to be out there slandering both of these people and saying, well, you know, they were having an affair, right? That's why we fired them. That is not, we did not fire them the same day because they got captured. We fired, it was already in the works that we were going to This was just bad timing. And this just happened the same day. How weird is that, you guys? But, you know, he was cheating on his wife, right? Like, you know, like you can just see the headlines and the spin and how all this was going to work you know, whether or not he got out of this situation. Did he or did, didn't he do it? It didn't matter. It didn't matter. That's why the ambiguity works, because it didn't exactly. matter. They were going to do they were going to do that. The company was going to do that, whether or not it was the truth. That phone call from his employer, CRT, it was yeah, CRT. one of the only times in the movie where I was deeply invested in the drama. That oh, I, I mean, right. the drama beyond the immediate survival drama of will he get out? During mm-hmm. that phone call, I was as mad as he was. So yeah. I really loved that writing development. And we yes. really see the screenwriter successfully starting to dole out what his thematic intent is here, which is Mm -hmm. to remind us, the viewer, that when you align yourself with an institution, whatever it is, whether it's an employer or a government 
or a religion, they mm-hmm. probably won't have your back in the end. Exactly. I really exactly. love how he threaded the needle on that. I thought that that was one oh, of the yeah. most impressive parts of this movie. I'm ready to talk about the ending, are you? Let's get to it. <laughs> Let's dive in. It is very much a bad negative outcome for this character. And yes. unlike you, I only began to suspect that that might be the case once we got that scene where he hallucinates his rescue. If we're seeing yeah. this happy ending as a dream or a hallucination, there's no way they're going to show the same thing again, but this time it's <laughs> for real. That's just not how movies work. I gotta say, it took me at least 24 hours to fully process the ending. I had to process. Movie. I had to process. Yeah. I had two I had two major feelings about this movie's potential ending. My first feeling was he probably won't get out of this, not in the way that we expect him to get out of this. I expected there to be some kind of twist. I expected there, maybe this is just being a person who grew up uh, watching Shyamalan movies, but like, I'm like, there's a twist. Like I was expecting there to be something to happen, but not the ending we expected. And then the other thing was this end of the movie, it almost felt like a really, really dark punchline. That, oh God, they brought us to the guy I told you we saved. And to me, I don't necessarily, I didn't interpret that as uh, bad. I, I mean, I interpreted it as bad, but I didn't interpret it as, oh, your rescuer just lied to you because he was a monster. He was terrible. I interpreted it as he had hope as well. This sounded like for him, the disappointment in his voice, the terror in his voice, the sadness in his voice very much conveyed that he also had felt very hopeful that he was going to be able to find uh, Paul in the desert. But he couldn't and he didn't and he wasn't able to deliver that promise. And I almost wish he just hadn't said anything and let those final moments just be what they were, as opposed to telling him, hey, you're going to die. You're condemned. This is it. End of. Anyway, what was your experience? I think very similar to yours. Everything that you said about Dan and him not being a villain, I absolutely agree with. And I think a lot of that is the sophistication with which he was written and acted. All that being said about Paul's untimely demise, there Mm -hmm. is a part of me, because this is how I watch movies, I think he might have made it. (laughs) Yeah? Do you think that that's a stupid thought? I don't think that's a stupid thought. I, 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 I think that the part of us that loves films, <laughs> loves a good, solid, happy ending, wants that to be the case. I'm going to fight for it for as long as I can. And they yeah. cut to black before we saw him turn into a corpse. So I'm going with it. <laughs> I mean, I was even the way I processed it afterward. Mm-hmm. I thought, OK, well, enough sand was filling the coffin that maybe now there's enough air above the coffin. He could pull a bride from Kill Bill Volume 2 and start punching through the lid. Also, it is sand. It's not dirt. Right. 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 So I was very distracted by the physics of it. And I really did think we could imagine an ending where he crawls out successfully to safety. Like the snake that was in the coffin with him. Exactly. If the snake got in, he could get out. I think the way that you described the final outcome was pretty perfect as a punchline because I also laughed ruefully. And (laughs) 
I'm happy to see that this movie got a lot of love from filmmakers in particular, including mm-hmm. John Waters. Oh, righty. He named it one of the best <laughs> movies of the year. And he said that wow. it is the feel bad movie of the year. Go see it with someone you hate. <laughs> and I think that when that John is Waters absolutely perfect. <laughs> right. It is a sad, bad ending that is perfectly mm-hmm. executed. I'm pretty sure that if it had given us a happy ending, or I want to get out of this sad, happy dichotomy, if they had devised an ending like you were describing, like he gets out, but there's a twist, you know, Mm -hmm. like he gets out, but at what cost, right? Right. If it does somehow end in his rescue, I think that I would not have even really kept it in mind, you know, it would have been a pump and dump. I would have watched it, we would have recorded this episode, and then I really would have forgotten about this movie. But there is something impactful and memorable about the outcome that they chose. I think too part of it is the fact that like not too long before this particular ending, he cuts off his finger. And it's the fact that he had to go through like a a torturous event, like not that this whole thing hasn't been terrible and torturous, but we are so used to seeing characters who suffer in this particular way when it's not a horror film, but who suffer in this particular way and they are the protagonists, that they are rewarded or like maybe that was his penance potentially for that affair that he had. He cuts off his finger and then, okay, now we're going to get right. That was the worst of it. We've put him through the ringer. Now we're going to finally deliver him from evil and badness. Right. Here's the release. This is this is the thing that that, this is the thing that allows us to give you this happy ending. But like seeing that moment, like reflecting on all of the things that he went through in that coffin and then only still to die, like a genuinely surprising outcome. Yeah, genuinely surprised. I was genuinely shocked. I literally got up. As the credits were rolling and paced around my room. Oh, God. It affected me. It is disturbing in like the way the cask of Amontillado, I'm always butchering that phrase, but like the way that story is like disturbing, where you're like, you start to really put yourself in that situation and you're just like, oh, this was trash. Like, this would be a horrible way to die. Like, this would be horrifying like the last two and a half hours of my life have just been non-stop torture and then I get a like a bracing glimpse of hope to the point where I'm telling my loved one I'm coming home like right now like as soon as possible and then you get this just cosmic punchline of oh bro it ain't gonna work out for you sorry about that you lost your job your family has no insurance now you're dead like there's nothing you can do sorry (laughs) like unbelievable How full would this make your bottle? I'm going to come out pretty strongly for this one, surprisingly. You know, Ryan Reynolds questions aside, uh, again, audio montage aside, (laughs) I'm going to give this an A minus just for the sheer impressiveness of what they've accomplished and the staying power of this particular story. I'll be thinking about this one for a while. What about you? I see this as the inverse of Panic Room in a lot of ways. We Mm. talked about how Panic Room had strong performances, amazing Mm -hmm. technical achievements, but Mm -hmm. the story felt a little thin and lacking. There just wasn't much meat on the bones all told. Mm -hmm. This movie, total flip side. 
there are a lot of script conveniences that I that aren't worth really mentioning. Like, why did the terrorists tie him up? Why did the terrorists wait for him to call them? Right. They just and aren't worth talking they, about, um, but like, they did bug she, me in the moment. Why didn't they empty his pockets? <laughs> right. <laughs> why did they leave him with alcohol and a pen? There are a bunch of like little flubs and nits that run the risk of sort of tainting the script, but don't in the end for me. I think that ultimately the story is very strong. So mm-hmm. not only is it immersive and experiential, the movie also has something on its mind and delivers those thoughts in a way that is not as heavy handed as it could have been. But I really did not love some of the creative choices. I didn't love some of the hyper editing. I wish that the director who edited his own work would have just stayed longer on some of his own shots. Despite the beautifully executed lighting and cinematography, I thought that the music sort of killed the mood in a lot of ways. And I do think that a much stronger, more sophisticated actor could have really elevated the performance that we got. So just doing that calculus in my head, ultimately, the grade that gets spit out at the end of the machine is a B minus. Oh, wow. I know. Okay, wow. <laughs> and in my book, B-minus is still a good movie. I would still watch is, this movie yeah. again, and I really would heartily recommend it to other people yeah. to watch. So it shouldn't be taken as a slight. Ultimately, I do think this is a really, really solid movie. Absolutely. Before we go, a couple of folks were lovely enough to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts from Taka's Tunes. This one's called Bottling Up All My Feelings. I love this podcast. The hosts are so smart and hilarious. Plus, I love a bottle episode. It's the best. Thank you, Taka's Tunes. We also got this incredible review from Leo the Lion. Leo says, interesting and thoughtful analysis. I listened to the Mad Men episode and absolutely enjoyed their analysis. They captured the essence of the TV show by recounting several intricate details from the emotional connection to the wardrobe to the camera shots. If you like smart, funny and intriguing conversation about TV, then you'll enjoy this. And if you do enjoy this, we welcome you to leave your own review at Apple Podcasts. It'll be a big help to this podcast if you would let others know how much you enjoy it as well. And with that, this has been Bottle Episodes. If you have an idea for a bottle episode from television or film history that we should cover, or if you're trapped in a single primary location and need to send a distress call, email podcastbottleepisodes at gmail.com. That's podcastbottleepisodes at gmail.com. Say goodbye, Courtney. Goodbye, everybody. 